Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Good. We have either a Chinook here, or the end of the polar vortex. Either way, it is nice and warm out. Yeah, if you don't know what a Chinook is, because we live in like practically the only place where it happens. It's a warm wind that basically comes down through the Rocky Mountains and makes Calgary like unseasonably warm a few times every winter, which is a welcome relief from like the minus 40 degree February chill most of the time. Yes. Uh, But yeah, I do think that the polar vortex that hit us last week has moved down to parts far south of us, from what I understand, from the news. Yeah, um, it seems like things are warming up in Texas, but Mm. hopefully for any of our Texas listeners, uh, we hope you manage to get through it all right and not bear the brunt of frozen pipes and burst pipes and all of that jazz. Yeah, we hope you're doing all right. Yeah. In other news, what are we watching today? (laughs) Today, Sarah, we are watching an adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden. It's the second adaptation of Yatsia Kaiden, or the ghost story of Yatsia. It won't be the last. Um, this is one of the more oft-filmed pieces of literature in Japanese cinema, alongside its literary sibling, the 47 Ronin. So since we've sort of covered Yatsia Kaiden on the show before, if you don't have the time to listen to our previous episode on it, uh, here's Sarah to give you the rundown. Yeah, if you do want the full historical background on the play, on Kabuki, on post-war Japan, U.S.-occupied Japan, all of that jazz, go down and listen to episode 153. That version came out in 1949, but the original play was a kabuki play first performed in 1825 during the golden age of kabuki. Mm -hmm. It was written by Suraya Namboku IV. A fake name, if I remember correctly. Sort of. Like a title, almost like a name that's passed down. Right. He was born in 1755 as Ibiya Genzo, and then when he married... His wife, her dad, was Suraya Namboku III, and also a notable playwright. Mm -hmm. So then Genzo here took on that title. Got it. Now, he's written around 120 plays. Right. So quite quite prolific, I would think. Um, But he tends to lean towards the supernatural and macabre in order to explore domestic themes. Mm-hmm. Right, and Yatsia Kaiden fits right in with that. Exactly. Um, in fact, it's one of his most popular plays, right alongside his play from 1813, uh, titled Asome Hisamatsu Ukina no Yumiyuri, uh, which translates to Asome and Hisamatsu, a scandal sheet. <laughs> yeah, I think I've read somewhere that, like, at any given time, somewhere in Japan, they are performing Yatsia Kaiden. 
that would be probably very accurate. Yeah. Um, now, the original play has the title of Takaido Yatsuwa Kaiden, uh, which just is the ghost story of Yatsuwa in Takaido. Yeah, and some of the movie versions are called Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden as well. The Tokaido sort of comes and goes. Yeah. As I said, this was a kabuki play, and kabuki plays often had a full-day program Mm -hmm. when they would go on. They were kind of a big deal. And there were three main subjects that the plays would typically revolve around. So the first would be a play on a historical subject called... Jidai Mono. Mm-hmm. During the full day program, this play would be performed first. Second would be Siwa Mono, domestic plays. And domestic meaning like focused on family drama, a love story, mm-hmm. typically a tragic ending, uh, like a, and a story ending in suicide. Sure, melodrama. Yeah. And the third subject being Shosakoto which would be a dance segment. Sure. Throughout all of this, everything would be very stylized. Um, there would be a mix of the acting and the dancing, very dramatic makeup. Um, everything is very much focused on the spectacle. Mm-hmm. So even in, say, the historical subjects, everything's very, like, I guess melodramatic, but just, like, very, like, big and in-your-face. Heightened, Exactly. When planning this kind of full-day program, as you even see in today's, like, film programs, people would combine different plays to have um, overarching themes kind of brought forward Mm -hmm. and having, like, a compare-contrast situation. Yeah, if you're always going to be doing a double feature, like, you might as well put some effort into what you're putting together. Exactly. And when it came to Yatsuya Kaiden, it would be paired with the play... Kanadean Jushingua, uh, also known as 47 Ronin. Now, 47 Ronin and Yatsuya Kaiden are both, like, very long five-act plays. Uh, so when pairing them, it would end up being performed over the course of two days with a really unique intercutting between the two. So on the first day, the first four acts of 47 Ronin would be performed, followed by the first three acts of Yatsuya Kaiden, And then on the second day, you would basically get the climax of both. What's really neat with both the pairing of these two plays and then also the intercutting is the way that it brings forward some unique themes. So 47 Ronin is a big deal. It's it's based on a historical incident, hence why it's in that historical slot of the program. Um, And it's kind of become a piece of national identity because these... 47 Ronin, uh, Ronin being masterless samurai, um, their lord uh, committed suicide because he pissed off another lord. These 47 Ronin plan their revenge over the course of the year, of the following year, and then go and kill that other lord. And the play, as well as any further adaptations, really are used to exemplify the loyalty, sacrifice, and honor values that um, are very prominent in Japanese culture. When you compare those story beats to what happens in Yatsuya Kaiden, it really just like further underlines how much of a shitty dude our main character is. 
Um, so Yatsuo Kaiden, at its most basic, is a ghost story of a ronin without honor, being a really big fuck-up and continually fucking up. Um, purposefully, he's not just inept. Um, and uh, his deceased wife uh, coming back and haunting him and driving him insane. Um, obviously, there's a bit more to it, given that it's five acts, so let me kind of take you through what happens in the original 1825 play. Being a five-act melodramatic play, it is fucking confusing as hell, so I will try to, like, explain what is going on to a level of, like, detail that is needed to follow, but not, like, getting lost in the weeds. Our main ronin, his name is Tamiya Yemon. He is married to Oiwa, but she's really unhappy in this marriage. So her father, Yemen's father-in-law, tries to talk to Yemen, suggesting that maybe they should separate, get a divorce. Uh, Yemen goes into a rage, angry about this, and murders his father-in-law. Meanwhile, we have a, another samurai named Nausuke, and he is in love with Esode, who happens to be Oiwa's sister, uh, and Asode works at a brothel. Further complicating the matters is Asode is married to Sato Yamasichi, and we have another important character, the brothel owner, who's named Takuetsu. Nausuke is head over heels for Asode, but he can't pay her fee, and so he gets laughed out of the brothel by Takuetsu and Yamasichi. So Nausuke goes and gets drunk, drown his sorrows, when his former master approaches him, he'd be like, Hey, Nasuke, you seem like you're in a, in a bad place. Thinking it's Yamosichi, Nasuke murders his former master. The play sets this up at, so that the murdering of Nasuke's former master and Yemen's murder of his father-in-law happen at the same time. And so it ends up that Yemen and Nasuke conspire together to cover both their asses, um, that they know we haven't murdered anyone. So Yemen gets to disguise his involvement in the murdering of his father-in-law, and Nausuke gets to say that, oh, Asode, I'm going to go avenge your father, and uh, if I do this, will you marry me? And Asode says yes, despite already being married. Meanwhile, other side of town, we have a character named Ume, and she is the granddaughter of a rich local named Ito Kihei. And Ume loves Yemen. Alas, she feels she could never win him because his current wife, Oiwa, is much prettier. So she and her family conspire to send Oiwa some facial cream that has like an acid poison thing in it that ends up disfiguring Oiwa. So Yemen now is like, fuck, I don't want to be with this girl. I want a divorce. And he goes to the brothel owner, Takiwatsu, asking him to rape his wife, in order to have grounds for divorce. Takuatsu goes to go do this, but he is kind of overcome by sympathy and pity for Oriwa, so he can't actually go through with this plan. Um, instead, he shows her a mirror, she sees her disfigured face, and she ends up putting two and two together that, oh, my husband made you come over here to do this because of my face, so she goes hysterical, she goes to grab a sword to go attack Yemen. Takuetsu tries to stop her, and in that struggle, she accidentally cuts her throat, and she curses Yemen with her dying breath. But Yemen no longer has a wife, so he's free to go get engaged to Ume. 
which he does. But he's haunted by Oiwa's ghost. Um, and this haunting leads him to killing Ume and her grandfather on their wedding night. Yeah, because he, he sees Ume, but, like, thinks she's Oiwa haunting He sees him. Oiwa kind of coming at him, and he goes to attack, and it actually is Ume. Right. Yeah. yeah. Driven by this haunting, Yemen ends up murdering the rest of the household, including drowning Ome's mother in the nearby canal. Nasuke sees this and then tries to blackmail Yemen for a document, which then the the play uh, shows Nasuke and Yomosichi, uh, Asode's husband, fighting over. Um, and in the summaries I could find, no one's very clear about what this document is, but given what happens next, I think it's like a marriage license or a way for Asode to divorce Yomosichi. Um, this is when the play would break uh, for that first day of that program. When we come back, Nosuke is married to Asode, and he wants to consummate. And Asode doesn't really want to, and doesn't really explain why. I mean, you can kind of imagine why, but there's more to it than that, because melodrama. Just as Nosuke goes after her anyways, Yamosichi appears, um, her first husband, and basically is like, you're a terrible wife, Asode, you uh, have committed adultery between myself and then, like, your clients, and now with Nausuke, like, you have no honor. Um, you should be ashamed of herself. Um, and Asode is overcome with shame, so she decides to kill herself. In her suicide note, she tells Nausuke that we're actually siblings! Seems like that should have come up earlier. It should have! Um, Nasuke is overcome with shame himself over the marriage to his sister, the attempted consummation with his sister, but also, hey, remember how you killed your former master? You, you're a shitty guy, Nasuke, and he kills himself. Meanwhile, Yemen is still haunted by Oiwa, and he has run into the mountain wilderness to try to get away, um, but he is slowly driven mad. Yomosichi uh, happens upon him and decides to kill Yemen, both out of, like, everything that's happened to him, but also, oh god, this pitiful creature, I will put him out of his misery. And that's the end of the play. Mm-hmm. Everyone dies except Yomosichi. This story has been performed many, many, many times, and it has been adapted many, many, many times. Mm-hmm. It is considered one of the most famous Japanese ghost stories, and with those many adaptations, details have changed over time. Yeah, absolutely. The addition of characters, the removal of characters, the joining of certain like plot points, and, and the addition of certain plot points, it's, it's crazy. In the case of the 1949 adaptation, um, which again, it's episode 153 if you want to go experience it for yourself. It was directed by Kesuke Kinoshita, um, and it it's more like a realistic depiction rather than more of a ghost story, hence why it's actually not ranked on the list. Uh, we determined it's a more of a melodrama than a horror movie. Uh, as part of that realistic depiction, there's no actual ghost or haunting. Everything is kind of in Gaiman's head, but also... Um, 
Asode and Oiwa are twins in this one. Yeah. And so Asode knows that Yemen killed her sister and she dresses up like her sister to cause guilt on Yemen's part. So there's a lot more going on. Yeah, Yemen still like sees Oiwa everywhere, but it's more like he's hallucinating her from his like guilt than like there's an actual ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hallucination or actually seeing her twin sister dressed up as her. Yeah. So the likely reason for why it goes towards this more realistic depiction um, that we kind of talked about in that episode is likely due to Kabuki's loss of prominence over time, especially in occupied Japan. Uh, That movie came out in 1949, and Kabuki had actually been banned during the occupation, with that ban being lifted in 1947. So Kabuki's coming back in the theater houses, but the spectacle elements really didn't come back into Kabuki play adaptations in film until the 60s. So with that de-emphasis on spectacle in the 1949 version, um, we also noted that it emphasized more of the uh, the tragedy, the melodramatic tragedy, rather than like a horror shock spectacle. But for the most part, like it's kind of the same basic plot points with some added elements for more drama, like Oiwa and Asode being twins. Um, so let me tell you what that film is about, and that will help us figure out how similar or different this 1956 one is. Yeah, this is... Yatsuya like, in a way, kind of Robin Hood or King Arthur in the sense that, like, each adaptation adds or takes away stuff, as you said, but then also future adaptations are not just influenced by the play, but by previous adaptations, right? So as elements get added, like barnacles, they might show up in future versions, which is why we kind of, like, need to take you through each version. (laughs) Yes. The 1949 version is, like, three hours long, so it's split into two parts, and that split happens around the same time as that split in the original play during, like, the day one, day two thing, Um, but I'll still, like, point out when it happens. In this version, we also, um, we have a new character by the name of Kohei. Yes. So, Nasuke and Kohei are in jail, and they see a jailbreak going on, and they sabotage it um, in exchange for early release. Kohei is in love with Oiwa. So, he, once he's out, he's going looking for her, um, and it's through him that we meet her twin sister, Asode, who he mistakes for Oiwa at the beginning, and her husband, Yomosichi. Nasuke, meanwhile, happens to be neighbors to Yemen and Oiwa, and on the way home, he witnesses Yemen saving this woman named Ume, um, and talks with her and realizes that she loves Yemen. Nasuke knows that Ume is rich as fuck, so he's like, hey Yemen, you should get with Ume, and then give me some of the profits as like a headhunting fee or something. Nasuke does some of this conspiring uh, with Ume's maid, Omaki, but Yemen isn't very interested in this. Um, not so much that, like, oh, no, I love Oiwa, but a, no, I can't go back on my responsibilities. He does feel a little trapped in this marriage. We see that Kohei's mom is looking for him, but Kohei is focused on the love of his life, doesn't doesn't go to his mom. And the convicts from the jailbreak are looking for Nasuke. Hmm. 
Nasuke knows that Kohei loves Oiwa, so he's like, Kohei, go get Oiwa, have your fun time, because he's thinking, if Kohei does this, Yemen will have grounds for divorce, and then we'll marry Ume, blah 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 blah. But Oiwa keeps Kohei away. Oiwa is very much in love with Yemen, even though Yemen's a shitty person, as mm-hmm. we see. Yeah. Yemen, for his part, he, you know, doesn't want to give up, doesn't want to leave Oiwa, but he does still meet with Ume. Yeah, a key point here being that because Yemen's a ronin, a masterless samurai, he doesn't actually have income. But, you know, he used to be a samurai, so he used to have a lot of income. So there's a feeling of, like, wanting that lifestyle again and not being able to have it because of being married to Oiwa, who has no money. Yeah. Yeah. So he meets with Ume and her father, and seems to be kind of going along with Nasuke's plan, though very reluctantly. He ends up asking Oiwa for a divorce, and she begs him to stay, because she's basically screwed without him, both being, like, a woman in the 1800s, but also she um, was an orphan, took care of her sister, she used to work at the brothel and would have to go back there. Like, please don't leave me. So... Nausuke is like, hey, here's some poison, kill your wife, and then you can get with Ume. But Yeman is like, no, I can't bear to use this. During an argument about divorce, Oriwa falls face first into boiling water. Uh, so she has, like, horrific burns. Nausuke is walking by and gives, gives her some ointment that actually causes these burns to scar and Oriwa is freaking out over her face now. It's been a few days, and it's it's now scarred, and she's freaking out about it, and is completely in despair. So Yemen pities her and gives her the poison tea. Except this poison causes a very painful death. So Yemen goes to Nausuke, and he's freaking out um, about all of this that's gone on, and Nausuke's like, no, like, shut up, stop freaking out, you got what you wanted. Kohei overhears this, and is like, what? how could you kill Oiwa, my, the love of my life? So they end up having to kill Kohei to keep the plot secret. Meanwhile, a character named Takiwetsu, who uh, in this version is just a, a guy on the street, sees all of this and ends up blackmailing them in order to stay silent. The only bit of a ghost happens right at this point with some spooky lights and mysterious knocking at Asode's door, um, though no one is there. And it's at this point that part one finishes. When we come back for part two, we see that Asodai has decided to go check up on her sister because of that weirdness with, like, the door and the lights. Um, but it seems like no one's home. She does run into Tekuetsu, who shares a rumor that Oiwa eloped with Kohei. But Asodai is not convinced, and so she and her husband get a detective involved. Meanwhile, Kohei's mom continues to search for her son, um, and she sees some blood on a door in the canal. She tells the police, and the police discover the bodies upriver. By this time, Yemen is married to Ume, um, but guilt seems to plague him. He consistently dreams of Oiwa and thinks that he sees her around the house. Yomusichi learns of the marriage, and he and Asode kind of put two and two together. Meanwhile, Nasuke plans to blackmail Yemen now because Yemen has access to wealth and knows that he killed his ex-wife. Yeah, and he's not, like, giving Nasuke the, like, 
original deal of like, hey, once you get married to Ume, cut me in. Yeah. He's kind of like giving Nasuke the like cold shoulder. The police are kind of closing in on Nasuke, um, leading him to kill Takiwatsu to kind of keep him quiet. During this time, Asode dresses up in one of Oiwa's kimonos to see Yemen and kind of push his guilt. Um, and this causes him to freak out, and he runs around the manor house with his sword, kind of threatening the household. Nasuke goes to Yemen saying, we gotta get out of town, help me break into Ume's family's storehouse to get our getaway cash, and then, you know, we'll get out of here before the police come in. Yemen's like, break into someone's storehouse? You're, you're an expert thief? And flashes back to when Yemen lost his job seven years ago because an expert thief broke into the storehouse. Turns out that thief was Nasuke. So, <laughs> the melodrama. Oh my god. The night that they planned to break into the storehouse and make the getaway, um, Yemen goes to see Ume, who is now staying at her father's because Yemen was running around this, the house with the sword, and asks her to run away with them. But she won't. So in their fight, um, there's a fire started. During this time, the police have come to the house and have cornered Nasuke. He's fighting them off in the now-burning house. And because of the fire, Ume's face gets burned. Gaiman's like, no, all my wives. Nasuke, it's all your fault. And stabs Nasuke and becomes overwhelmed with guilt as the house burns around him. And he thinks he sees Oiwa's ghost walking amongst the flames. Um, he's consumed by the flames. Ume is saved out of the burning house. And then the next day, Sode and Yomusichi are at the scene of the house. Um, Kohei's mom is there too. And they're like, man, this sucks, but at least Oiwa and Kohei are now at peace. You know, we, we can all live happily ever after, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that's the 1949 version. So as you can see, you have, like, the same cast of characters and the same basic incidents, but, like, the exact relationships and the nature of all the double crossings and, and sort of machinations get, like, remixed. Yeah. The thing that you see with all these adaptations is, like, there's a few key beats that you have to hit. And I mean that in the sense of not only are they, like, key to the story, but they're the kind of things where, like, the audience will complain if you don't do them yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and... Even though, as Sarah explains the plot, it's all these complicated plot machinations, the things that, if you go to see the Kabuki play, the things that you take away from it are these, like, key visual moments, much more than any of the melodramatic story. So, you know, Oiwa getting burned, or however her face gets fucked up, but Oiwa's face getting fucked up. This image of her looking at herself in the mirror and combing her hair back which normally in Kabuki theater is like a, basically it's supposed to be sexy. Um, yeah, it's a very, very intimate moment right. with her. But her, um, in the original Kabuki play, her hair is falling out. Yeah, so she's like combing her hair across and all of her hair is falling out. So that's like a really key image. This thing where her ghost appears as a lantern and like flies at Yemen. Like these key visual moments are what people remember. Yeah. And it's Oiwa's ghost and sort of these key visual things of like 
Yemen seeing Ume as Oiwa's ghost and attacking her. Like, these key beats that have to show up every time, even if you've remixed everything around them. Yeah. Um, given that this 1956 version is, like, an hour and a half Yeah, it's 86 less, minutes long. Uh, I have a feeling that they are going to strip this down to its basics um, and kind of build from there. This version given the length that we just cited, it's not the big prestige picture that the 1949 version was. You know, the 1949 version was, as Sarah said, three hours long, released in two parts. This is not that. This is not a big-name director like Keisuke Kinoshita. This is a basically a B-movie. Okay. Um, that kind of A-movie, B-movie kind of thing, like, I don't want to quite use that terminology because the realities of exhibition in theaters in Japan are slightly different than in America at this time. But basically, this is what we would recognize as a B-movie. It comes to us courtesy of the studio Shin Toho, which that name just means new Toho or true Toho, depending on what um, kanji you want to use for Shin. Uh, and as the name suggests, it was founded by defectors from Toho in 1947 following a labor strike. So a bunch of people left Toho, made their own studio. Initially, um, Shin Toho's deal was trying to get like prestige directors over to make like better movies than what everyone else was making in an atmosphere of like, we're the new hip studio and, you know, we stand for freedom and we're pro-labor and all this kind of stuff. The studio kind of rose up through the ranks to become one of the major Japanese studios of what's called the Golden Age of Japanese Cinema, which here in 1956, we are, like, deep in. Okay. That Golden Age is sort of heralded by the rise of filmmakers like Akira Kurosawa and Yasujiro Ozu and other Japanese directors becoming better known on an international level in America and, and film festivals around the world. Um... It's also the period of time when tokusatsu cinema and Japanese special effects films start to become something that's being also brought overseas. You know, so Gojira, Rodan, Radon, uh, Mosura, these kinds of films um, getting international play. Uh, so the big six studios of the Japanese golden age of cinema were Toho, Daie, Nikatsu, Shochiku, who made the earlier version of Yatsuya Kaiden, and Toei, along with Shin Toho. Now, with this explosion of Japanese cinema, suddenly studios like Toho are seeing a level of success that, you know, they're not used to, because suddenly there's this international market for their films. So they start making more movies. There's more money coming in, and we're putting that money into making more movies. Um, so in order to keep up with the other five major studios, Shintoho develops a new strategy of let's pump out B-movies. Sure. Not necessarily in terms of quality, but a little bit of that, like, monogram or maybe more Columbia kind of approach. Yeah, exactly. We're going we're gonna to compare with the majors by just, like, cranking it out. Like their American counterparts, the B-movies in Japan are based around stock characters in stock genres. Um, so crime movies, melodramas, um, and especially period films, uh, Jidai Geki. Um, and Jidai Geki can be 
period Yakuza movies, period ghost stories, or uh, period samurai action movies, which are uh, Chanbara films. Well, I can see where Yatsuya Kaiden falls in. Exactly. So Yatsuya Kaiden is the first of these like period horror ghost story B-movies that Shintoho makes. And I mean, it makes sense as a place to start, basically. Yeah. Um, but there's like a whole slew of them that Shintoho starts pumping out after this point. There's like a whole series of movies that are just called like Ghost Story, colon, something or other. <laughs> so given all of this, um, this rendition of Yatsuya Kaiden was intended as, I don't want to say cheap entertainment, but like cheap entertainment for an audience that knows the story, knows what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with that in mind, um, Shintoho gave directing duties to Masaki Mori, who was very much a like journeyman director, the kind of guy who you, you give assignments to and he does them. Uh, His earliest credits in the Japanese film industry were as a production manager and assistant director in the late 1930s and early 40s. But his move up the ranks towards being a feature film director was put on hold by World War II. Sure. After the war, Mori signed on with Shintoho, uh, directing a series of just, like, dramas, crime movies, these kind of B-movie Yeah, what do you need? Cool, I'll do it. Exactly. And that's what he's doing here. Uh, As such, this is not a revisionist take on Yatsuya Kaiden. Um, This is a traditional back-to-basics sort of approach. The goal here is to do a good job telling a story that everyone knows. Despite this, the pedigree of one of the screenwriters here is actually quite high. One of the screenwriters, uh, Toreo Tanabe, uh, is making his debut... As a screenwriter here, it's his first effort writing on a feature film. But his writing partner here, Hideo Oguni, was Akira Kurosawa's most frequent screenwriting partner. Okay. Uh, He has a career that stretches all the way back to the early 1930s, and his credits include Ikiru, Seven Samurai, I Live in Fear, Throne of Blood, The Lower Depths, The Hidden Fortress, The Bad Sleep Well, High and Low, Red Beard, Tora Tora Tora, and Ron. Big deal guy. Wow. Now, on all of those Kurosawa films, Aguni was serving as a co-writer with Kurosawa, um, and often with even like a third writer um, who Kurosawa would work with a lot. And Aguni's specialty as a co-writer was in maintaining consistency of theme throughout a script, ensuring that basically nothing gets into the movie that doesn't fit what the movie's about. Sure. A little bit of a wrangler. Yeah. Today, probably the most notable thing about this particular adaptation of Yatsuya Kaiden is the casting for Yemen. Uh, he is played in this movie by Tomosaburu Wakayama, who is better known in the West for playing the ronin Ogami Ito in the six Lone Wolf and Cub films of the 1970s. Cool. He's the Lone Wolf. Yeah. Tomosaburu Wakayama was born Masaru Okamura, in 1929 in Tokyo. He was the son of Minoru Okamura, whose stage name was Katsutoji Kineya, uh, because his dad was a kabuki performer. In fact, his entire family was kabuki performers, including his younger brother, Toshio Okamura, whose stage name is Shintaro Katsu, who is better known in the West for playing Zatoichi. Nice. Wow. Now, Wakayama uh, got tired of Kabuki 
and doing kabuki theater. Uh, so it does seem like a very tiring thing because you have to be like on well, the entire time. It's super heightened, as you said, but it's also hyper traditional. So it's like we need you to be over the top in the exact same way every day, right? Yeah. So he got really tired of that. So what he did was, in the 1950s, he began to train in Judo, and then in Kenpo, and then in Iedo, and then in Kendo, and then in Bojutsu, so that he could achieve his true goal, which was becoming a martial arts action movie star in Jidaigeki action movies. Amazing. So yeah, so he, he has all this background in theater, and then he goes and like becomes the best at all of these martial arts, so he can just go into Toho and be like, make me an action star. After debuting in the period Yakuza movie Banba no Chutaro in 1955, this adaptation of Yatsuya Kaiden was Wakayama's seventh film. Okay. So he's made seven films in a year since starting out as a movie actor. This is number seven. Yeah. But when you're pumping stuff out, you're busy. This adaptation's biggest deviation from the source material is the addition of a greedy mother for Yemen who is played by actress Choko Aida. Born in 1897, Aida was a veteran screen actress going back to 1922. I mention her because she played Koei's mother in the 1949 version of Yatsuya Kaiden. <laughs> oh, wow. That's neat. Yeah, so she's playing uh, Yemen's mother this time around, who is a sort of greedy, antagonistic figure. So Yatsuya Kaiden was the second film produced by Mitsugu Okura, and it was a big success for the producer when it was released on July 12, 1956, which led to Okura producing a whole series of period ghost story movies for Shintoho on a regular basis, including a far more famous adaptation of Yatsuya Kaiden, Tokaido Yatsuya Kaiden, directed by Nobuo Nakagama in 1959. So we'll be getting on to that version eventually. Uh, but this is like the dry run, the prototype. Cool. Well, I, I'm excited to see a version of Yatsuya Kaiden that is A, a horror movie, and B, not three hours long. Because <laughs> long movies have a place, but boy, is it hard to work into our schedule. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I, I like a good long movie, but it, it is... Difficult when you're having to base a podcast around it. Yeah. So how are we watching this? Uh, well, Sarah, the 1956 version of Yatsuya Kaiden is not one of the ones that's more notable in the West, which makes it pretty difficult to come across here. Um, it was released on DVD with English subtitles in Europe, but not in North America. So as long as you've got a region-free Blu-ray player and you're okay with ordering in... Uh, English subtitled DVD from Europe, that's going to be your best way to watch it. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. In the meantime, while we wait for your copy to arrive via the mail, um, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Yatsuwa Kaiden from 1956, directed by Masaki Mori. See you on the other side, everybody. Hey, just a heads up that the second half of the show includes discussion of domestic violence, sexual assault, and suicide. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. 
We just finished watching Yotsuya Kaiden from 1956, directed by Masaki Mori. Sarah, what did you think of this one? Well, this is a version of Yatsuya Kaiden that is definitely going on the list. Yeah, I would agree. For yeah, sure. Definitely a horror movie. I think it's better at being a ghost story than the 1949 version. I don't know about being better as a movie overall. Well, it feels like two movies put together a little bit. It feels hmm. disjointed. Interesting. That's not really how I feel about it. Oh, okay. Um, so discussion will be fun. Yeah, we'll see. Let's talk about how the plot has been simplified. It has definitely been simplified because my notes fit it all onto one and a half pages instead of three. Mm. So, you know, much better there. So, we see that Maki... An old woman is setting her son, Yemen, up with Ume, who is a woman from the very rich Ito family. Only problem is, he's currently married to a woman named Iwa. Maki tries to convince Yemen to leave Iwa, but he seems to stay in the marriage out of obligation. Um... We see their interactions, and he doesn't even seem to enjoy being in this marriage. So it's definitely a, a feeling of, like, obligation, maybe a little bit of guilt. Honor is like a samurai. Yeah. Now, Iwa has been working at a tea house. Are we sure tea house is a pseudonym for brothel? Tea house is a tea house in the context of this movie's universe. Um, like, we see her serving tea. It's just that, like, in this period of Japanese censorship, it would be commonly understood to, like, mean brothel. Uh. Sort of like if, like, you were watching a code-era western, and a bunch of people walked into a saloon, and there was, like, a bunch of, like, corseted babes walking around serving drinks, and no one ever mentioned why all the waitstaff is dressed like that. That kind of thing. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure we're not just... Assuming things. Mm -hmm. So she's been working because the family is constantly poor. And this seems to be largely because Yemen is consistently blackmailed by Nasuke. Nasuke was a servant at Iwa's family's castle, basically. Um, she comes from a very rich family. And Nasuke was witness to Yemen killing Iwa's father, Samon. Now this... Murder happened because Salmon was like, there's no way you're marrying Iwa. Your father was a farmer and your mother is a harlot. And Yemen was like, you lie! And, s and kills him. And Nasuke was a witness. As part of the flashback of seeing this, we see Yemen saying, don't worry, Iwa, I'll avenge your father. I'll find the killer. And Nasuke kind of, who's like a servant, you know, helping them move, basically, um, kind of confides to Iwa's sister, Asode, yeah, there's no way he's going to avenge your father. Mm. Doesn't say why, but it's just like, yeah, there's no way. He also promises Sode himself that he'll, like, Nasuke promises Sode that he'll avenge uh, her father. We also see at this time that Iwa is sick with something. Of some kind. It's just not elaborated on very much. Yeah. So, it seems like it's kind of the guilt 
around the father as well, which is why Yemen stays with her. Um, but eventually, Maki and Nasuke convince Yemen of this plan to basically hire, or rather pay, I guess, for the local masseuse, Takuetsu, to rape Iwa and justify Yemen killing her as revenge or whatever. Um, so they set this up, and as an extra measure, Maki gives Yemen poison to give to Iwa that will essentially disfigure her and then cause her to die. Right. It's uh, exotic poison from Holland. Mm-hmm. So the poison takes effect just as she is fighting off Takuetsu. Um, and as he is terrified by her face, Takuetsu explain, like, tells her the setup. You know, I was supposed to be here. I was supposed to attack you. Yemen set you up, whatever. And Iwa grabs a razor um, to both attack Takuetsu, but then also go after Yemen. And in a bit of the struggle, she accidentally slits her own throat and she dies. A couple things here. One, she dies over her son uh, because they have a kid in this one. Yeah, like a baby. Yeah. Um, I would say like under a year old. He's not even crawling yet. And she's like, what will happen to my son who we never see again? Yeah, I wanted to ask you what you thought happened to the infant because it just disappears from the movie at this point. And I got confused and wasn't sure if I was supposed to understand that she had killed the infant as she died or not. I didn't get the sense that she killed the infant um, because she's saying, like, what will happen when you're taken care of by Ume's family. Right, except that, yeah, then that baby just vanishes from the movie completely. Yeah, for reasons I will get into. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out here is as the disfigurement from the poison occurs, first it just seems like some bad acne, and then it eventually gets worse. And we do get a scene of her combing her hair and her hair falling out. And it, uh, the missing hair goes up pretty far. Uh, it, they do a lot of work to make it pretty grisly. Yeah, I think the thing I wanted to note here was just that, like, this is poison that, like, got put in her tea that she drank. And then it's like, oh yeah, the poison will make her break out. And, like, this is, this is a pretty extreme breakout. And it, like, spreads across her face, like pretty fast. Like, you need to imagine drinking something and it turning you into Two-Face. Yeah. Like, it's a little much. <laughs> well, it's from that exotic place of Holland. Right, yeah. Who knows what those Hollanders are up to. <laughs> Never trust the Dutch. <laughs> Takuetsu is pretty shaken by this entire fucking experience, but he still goes to rendezvous with Yemen and Nasuke because he's going to go get paid. Um, but he's killed instead. Yeah, don't make deals with guys who are richer and more important than you who are allowed to carry swords. Yeah. Takuetsu and Iwa's bodies are strapped to a wooden door and then thrown into the river. And that was Iwa and Kohei in the previous version, right? Yes. Yeah, because this whole thing about strapping the bodies to the doors is another one of these, like, iconic things about the story that we have to do. Yeah, I think in the previous version it was just Kohei. Hmm, maybe. Yeah, I don't remember for sure, but Kohei was definitely killed 
via the door in some sort of way, because that's why it's like, oh, the door was calling yeah. to his mom. Well, and, and the door thing is also a real historical incident that, like, inspired the writing of the play mm-hmm. or something. But it's one of those things where, like, by the time we get to this version, I'm not entirely sure why they're doing it. Like, <laughs> why wouldn't you just toss the bodies into the river? Why put them on the door? They'll float further downstream. That's sort of the only thing that made sense to me, but nobody says anything in this version about why they're doing it, which to me, I just note because it speaks to the idea of like, yeah, everyone in the audience just knows that this is what happens next. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Speaking of what happens next, Mm. Yeaman marries Ume. Great segue. (laughs) We get this very interesting scene of Yeaman performing a kabuki dance as part of uh, the, like, reception after the marriage. Yeah, he's got, like, this big... The best thing I can do to describe it is, like, a big furry hat on. And I've seen a lot of traditional Japanese weddings in movies. I've never seen this before. So if someone smarter than us knows what this is and can tell us about it, we're super interested. Yes, And it was very cool to see because knowing the history of the actor coming from Kabuki Mm -hmm. and like he does a very good job Mm -hmm. um, from at least from what I could tell of what I know of Kabuki. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was a neat treat, a neat surprise. Has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. It's just kind of a little, it's like the the band at Jabba's Palace. It's just like a little interlude that happens for no reason. (laughs) That night, Yemen is like, Come on, Ume, it's our wedding night. And she's like, yeah, I can't wait. And then suddenly, haunting begins. Yemen looks over to Ume, and suddenly his vision is filled with the disfigured look of Iwa calling out to him, Yemen, how could you be such a dick to me? And the soundtrack goes, <laughs> Nice voice crack. Yeah, some really neat, like, string sounds. And um, he freaks out, pulls out his sword, and he's like, Go back to the dead with you! And slices, killing Ume. He freaks out and runs through the castle and passes a room where he sees the ghost of Takuatsu saying, Pay me! Pay me! And... Yemen slashes with his sword. Turns out that was Ume's father. So he runs to his mom, who is also staying in the castle. He's like, Mom, I saw Iwa, and I've killed Ume and her father. And Maki is like, okay, well, we gotta get out of here then. Yeah, we're going to Mexico. Yeah, not actually Mexico. We're going to a Buddhist temple. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nausuke is married to a Sode. Remember her? Yeah. So she kind of says in the scene, like, I married you because you were going to avenge my father, so how about you go and do that? Yeah. Instead of coming around and, you know, being like, so how's the job hunt going? It's, so how's the revenge going? Yeah. Actually, before the scene, we saw uh, Nasuke basically dredging the river looking for, like, goodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. <laughs> goodies could be a whole whack of things. He's looking for, like... Someone dropped a nickel. Yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And he finds a nice looking comb. And he's like, dope, gonna bring this home and pawn it. And 
you know, get some money. And Asode sees this comb, and she's like, where did you find this? This was Iwa's. This, and our mother's before us. Like, this was in our family. Where the fuck did you find this? As far as she knows, Iwa has disappeared. Yeah, as far as she knows, Nowski doesn't just head over to Yemen's house, like, every day to be like, hey, give me some money, right? Like, Nowski's been pretending that he doesn't know where they are. Yeah. Nowski's like, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> when suddenly, haunting Sode is suddenly replaced with Iwa, just completely face melty, going like, fuck you, Nausuke. And Nausuke's like, I, I didn't do anything. It was Yemen who killed you. What? I did nothing. I had nothing to do with it. Okay, maybe I had a little bit to do with <laughs> it. But I had nothing to do with anything or or your dad or, I mean, it, Yemen killed your dad. I had nothing to do with it. And we cut back and Asode's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Grabs a chef's knife and just starts to try to, like, stab him and chasing after him. He escapes out of the house and he runs to a well and he's like, oh, man, oh, man, I'm I'm screwed. When suddenly, Iwa's ghost comes up behind him and, like, stabs him in the stomach. And then he turns and stabs him in the back and pushes him into the well and then we realize wait that wasn't Iwa that was a soda the whole time yeah I kind of read it like Iwa's ghost possessed her yeah yeah the villagers crowd around going what the fuck and like the police or magistrate or whoever comes over and he's like how could a woman do this and that's when she faints and so it's clear she was possessed um, and they comment, oh, she's bleeding. She bit her tongue out. Um, so she can't answer any questions. Gross. That's the last we see of Sode in this uh, particular adaptation. Back at the Buddhist temple, Maki is praying for Iwa's soul to go to Buddha. Doesn't seem to be working because Gaiman is still haunted. God, I wonder why. I wonder why Maki's prayers are going <laughs> so unanswered. He tries to go fishing, and he sees the door floating up to the river. He freaks out. It's unclear whether this is actually the door or not, um, because this seems to be the same area where Nasuke found the comb, so it could be the actual thing. But in any case, he sees the dead bodies of Iwa and Takuetsu arise and do their yay men, pay me kind of Ooh. thing. Um, and he, he freaks out and he runs back to the temple going, mom, mom, like it hasn't worked. And she slaps him and says, snap out of it. Like there's nothing happening. And this kind of brings a kind of sense mm. to Yemen because he goes, this has all been your fault. Yeah. Every step of this has been your fault. Yeah. And so he goes to attack her. She escapes the temple because the priest tries to hold back Yemen, um, but Yemen breaks free and goes after her. And he confronts her about, like, this whole plan was your doing. Um, you came up with marrying Ume, and I, I would have been happy with Iwa if it hadn't been for you fucking a farmer. And yeah, because, like... Because that's why he killed Iwa's father. Right, and it's like, I th it was a little unclear, but I think the idea is supposed to be because, like, he's a samurai, so I think the idea is supposed to be, like, his mom's husband 
was of noble birth, but his actual dad was this farmer. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, if you hadn't cheated, if I wasn't a bastard, then I would have been allowed to marry Iwa. Therefore, it's your fault I killed this guy, which that part's a bit of a stretch, but still, (laughs) it's all her fault. Yeah. And so he kills her for it. And then, more haunting, um, the spirits of Iwa, Takuetsu, and a lot of spooky voices, including his mother's laugh, echo through the graveyard as um, like the, a group of villagers surround him to try to restrain him. It's unclear why these villagers are here. Uh, ben and I think that the priest called them because there's a madman raving with a sword. Yeah, they just kind of show up and surround him like they're the bad guys at the end of a Zatoichi movie. Yeah. But, yeah, I think these are like supposed to come arrest him. I think these are guys coming to arrest him. Yeah. So they they fight, and they do try to restrain him, but uh, in the end, Yemen dies, and he calls for Iwa to forgive him. And I'm like, I don't think she's gonna do that, dude. I think that was the whole thing. (laughs) The end. So, judging by your plot synopsis, I think you liked this a lot more than I did. I liked the second half, Mm. because this movie feels like it's like 50% melodrama Mm. in the opening, and bores it heavy on the melodrama, Um, and then the last half is the horror. Yeah, and I feel like that's sort of how Yatsia Kaiden should go. Yeah. Um, I was getting a little, like, impatient. Mm-hmm. Because I knew, like, okay, we gotta hit these points before we get to the actual horror. Yeah, I feel like that's the biggest problem with Yatsia Kaiden, is there's, like, a lot of setup you have to get to before Iwa can go all multi-phase. Yeah, and so I felt felt very impatient. Um, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I, I completely agree that sometimes it's like they, it, they were moving chess pieces around in order to set up. Mm. Like, the things that they know that they have to do. Mm-hmm. Like, the poison that's going to disfigure her seems to come out of nowhere, because they already have a, a fine plan yeah. of, like, how to kill her. So this is, like, my biggest problem with the movie. I did have more fun in the second half once all the hauntings started, but I actually also have problems with that part of the movie, too, but we can talk about those in a bit. My problem with this part of the movie is I was really looking forward to seeing a simplified version of Yatsia Kaiden's plot, But for my money, this version is almost too simplified, because it's basically just, Maki did everything. We invented a character, and it's all her fault. She does everything. And that helps us get through the story faster, but it means that, like you're saying, when there's iconic stuff that they have to do, it doesn't make sense sometimes. So, like, Iwa has to get her face fucked up. And she has to comb her hair out in the mirror while Takuetsu watches. And you gotta do the bodies on the door. And you gotta have the flying spirits. And you gotta have Iwa coming out of the lantern. And all these things. But, like, Yemen as a character really suffers in this version to me because everything's Maki's plan. So unlike the 49 version, which was more of, like, a character study, like, in the 49 version, like, yeah, it's long. But I understand why every character is acting the way they are through that whole movie. Sure. I never really know what the fuck Yemen's deal is until, like, his whole deal just becomes I'm scared. But, like, 
before that because they've simplified the plot a lot, but that ends up kind of making Yemen a bit contradictory. Like, okay, he's so desperate to marry Iwa that he goes begging on his hands and knees to her dad, which is below his station. Then her dad insults him, so he kills her dad. They go off on the run, presumably to find her dad's killer, but really because, you know... And so now they don't have any money because, you know, I guess she's not rich because Yemen killed her dad and they went on the run. So now they're suffering in poverty, but, like, that was a huge motivation in the 49 version. It's not... The poverty kind of comes up here, but, like, Yemen also complains about Iwa being plain and Ume being prettier than her, which pin in that. (laughs) And then, like, you know, but then... His mom is like, marry Ume. And he's like, no, I made a promise to Iwa. I'm married to her. But then he's in a scene with Iwa and he's like, you're a piece of shit and I'm leaving you. It's like, so which is it, Yemen? What are we doing here? Yeah, that felt like melodrama for the sake of melodrama to me. It means that Yemen ends up coming off like really weak and impressionable because it just sort of seems like he's doing whatever another character in the scene is telling him to do. Like, Nausuke's like, do this, and he's like, sure. And his mom's like, do this, and he's like, sure. And I get that that's, like, in the end of the movie, kind of the point, because then he's like, oh, mom, it was you the whole time. But it it kind of really robs Yemen. Like, he's supposed to be the target of all the haunting. Yeah. And it kind of doesn't work well when, like, yeah, I just kind of killed you because, I don't know, some people told me to. Well, here's the thing. The 1941 version, that's how I found Yemen too. He's only doing things because Nowske is convincing him to do it. And that's kind of, from what I've seen of these two versions, and from what I've read of the plot synopsis of the 1825, that seems to be the thing about Yemen is that he's so weak-willed and has no spine that that's his failing. And if he had a spine, then he would have stood up for Iwa in the beginning. He would have stood up against doing any of these murders, doing any of these, like, blackmailing issues, any of that. I agree, but in the 49 version, I was always able to follow Yemen's motivations. Like, we knew that he was in love with Iwa, truly. And then their marriage goes on the rocks because of the money, and because in the 49 version, she miscarries. Yeah, As opposed to having the kid in this version. The kid that barely exists... And is hardly brought up, so it's like, why is this kid even here? I think it's supposed to be more like, oh, what what a tragedy then that she dies. I Like, I get that, but then it's like, it, 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 it again, it makes Yemen's motivations really unclear for me. Because it's like, well, you, but you have a son. And like, in the 49 version, he kind of only goes with Ume because Nausuke pushes him into it. And here it's like, he does seem to genuinely want Ume, but only as a mistress. And it's his mom who's pushing him to marry her, but, like, I don't know. It's just, the plot is so simplified and the the running time is so cut down that I think the difference between the 49 and here is we don't spend enough time with Yemen to understand what he actually wants out of the situation. Yeah. Whereas in the 49, like, he's inconsistent, but what's clear about what he wants is he wants his old status back. Yeah. Um, and in this movie, that's a little bit lost. Coming back to the point about oversimplifying, because everything is just Maki's one plan, as you were saying, 
the poison makes no fucking sense. Because why do you have the poison if you also have the Takuetsu plan? Whereas in the play, those two things come from different sources. The Takuetsu thing is Yemen's plan. The poison is Ume's family's plan. Also, Iwa's face has to get fucked up. That's a whole... That's the whole deal. Yeah. And in the play, that happens because Iwa is prettier than Ume. And so Ume's like, oh, that's the reason Yemen won't be with me. Well, then fuck Iwa and her pretty-ass face. We're going to give her a face cream that you put on your face that then fucks up her face. Yeah, I thought that, like, before we get to here's the plan to get Takuetsu involved and here's the poison... Um, I thought Maki was going to give her the face cream because it was clear like she's the villainous character mm-hmm. and the Ito family had no sense of villainy. No, the Ito family. <laughs> they're just a family. Yeah, they're just very nothing in this version. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's like Maki in one scene, like we'll call it scene A, is like, you should hire Takuetsu to rape your wife so that then you have an excuse to kill her. And then Maki in scene B like the next scene is like here's some poison to give to your wife to kill her and so it's like what and in in the 49 version the poison was something that she drank as well and it was also kind of this combined thing but the 49 version is has way more ins and outs and so it made sense at the time because like she burns herself in that one and then it's a whole thing and then blah 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 right whereas like here again it's simplified to the point where why do you have these things I think, like, what was a big crutch for them to simplify... And, like, I acknowledge that they had a very hard task in front of them. For sure. Because they have to simplify a very long play mm-hmm. into a very short film mm-hmm. while still having to hit these beats. Yes. And these beats only make sense in the context of the play. Yes. And so they are kind of, yeah, stuck with one hand behind their back... To justify things. Because I can think of a fairly, like, armchair screenwriter way of how to simplify this story into a short movie. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to hit the points that everyone in the time is going to want to go see. Yeah, the the movie's sort of trapped by audience expectations. Yeah. And what's really intriguing to me about having to hit these things that don't quite make sense outside their original context is whether people making the movie, watching the movie, even realized that these things don't make sense anymore. Because, you know, there's almost sort of a feeling of like, well, this is how the story goes. This is just what's supposed to happen. But you've changed things so much that things don't work. But like, do you even notice... Because you're just like, well, this is the part of this. Like, to me, the key thing here is the scene where she combs her hair. Yeah. Because it seems to come out of nowhere. Because she literally was just trying to fight off Takuetsu from raping her. Right. And then as soon as she starts to feel, like, this weird thing going on, if if it was me and I, start, like, looked into a mirror and saw my face, I'd be like, oh, God, oh, fuck. I wouldn't think, oh, well, time to get my hair out of my face with this comb. Yeah, like... There's no motivation for her to comb her hair. It's not in her face, for one thing. It's not all, like, frazzled. She just, yeah, is fighting off Takuetsu, feels a little bit sick, then has some some reaction on her face, like she's swelling, then looks at herself in a mirror, and then, yeah, pulls out a comb and just, like, starts 
Komen. And, and Takuetsu's still in the room! Right, and it's not like a thing where she's mentally snapped from, like, what's happened to her and she's just, like, idly doing this because she's crazy now or something. It's it's not. It's just happening because it's supposed to happen at this point. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I think this movie's a really interesting example of this particular very specific phenomena in adaptations. But it is something I've seen come up in other stories that get adapted all the time. Or in long-running franchises is another, like, good example of it. You know, when we've seen Spider-Man's origin a million times or Batman's origin a million times. And, you know, you get to the point where you'll have audiences looking at a recent version of one of those stories we tell a million times and going, wait, why did this happen? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it's like, then you go back and you go, ah, well, in the original version of this, that did make sense. But it's just sort of a thing that survived till now. Like... Like, we just recently watched the Tomb Raider movie, mm. the recent Tomb Raider movie right. from, like, 2019 or 2018 or whatever. Yeah, with uh, Alicia Vikander. And at the end of that movie, she buys her two, like, Laura Croft iconic guns. Mm -hmm. And she's like... I like one, but I'll take two. And there's, like, a moment of, like, a wink at the camera, basically. Right, yeah. But nothing in the movie set up why she would want, want these guns. giant guns that are bigger than she is. And, like, specifically, like, why she would want two. Like, there's no work done in the movie yeah. beyond, like, the people making this movie knowing, like, why people are in the audience. They're there to see Laura Croft be Tomb Raider. Laura Croft has two big guns, so give her the two big guns at the end. Or, like, when you have something where you've adapted it so many times that you start making up new explanations for things that already made sense. Yeah, but right? you want to mix it up. You want to give your take on it. Or you've just forgotten why it originally made sense. <laughs> like, like, um... The other thing that happens because of this oversimplification is there are characters and subplots who come off as, like, vestigial. Like, with Maki influencing Yemen to do all this stuff, Nausuke's kind of not really necessary. I think he's still here only because they couldn't exactly have Yemen and his, like, crone mother carrying the bodies into the <laughs> river, you know? But sure. then, like, because Nausuke's kind of vestigial, Asode becomes kind of vestigial. She's in literally two scenes. One that's like, hi, I'm still in this adaptation, and the other that's like, hey, it's time for me to get possessed and kill Nausuke. And that seems dope. It's super dope. It's great. But you could kind of cut it out of this movie, and it wouldn't affect or change anything. It, like, really underlines that it's not just in Gaiman's head. Right. It's not just the guilt driving him insane. It's a literal haunting. Yes. And the other thing I would say that is very strong in this version, compared to the 49, is that one of the reasons why Yatsia Kaiden is super popular, and we talked about this in the previous episode, is that Japanese women see Iwa as this kind of, like, avenging... Figure. Yeah, this set-upon wife in a very bad domestic situation being able to take revenge on her shitty husband. Right, and so, like, she has the agency or the power in death that she didn't have in life, so she's kind of a fantasy figure. And that kind of was lost in the 49 version by reducing her down to just, like, 
Yemen's guilty conscience. And here we definitely get much more of that feeling. Yeah, and what I I think why I also really liked the scene with Asode going after Nausuke is she starts to do that before she's possessed. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. She's just ready to wreck this dude. And it, it like it's just nice to see <laughs> It's just nice to see women murdering people from time <laughs> no, to time, you know? I didn't mean it like that. I know. It was just nice to see, like, oh, cool, she gets to, like, do something and be very, like, full of agency in that bit. Especially because the full first half is so heavy on, oh, poor Iwa, oh, God, she has a child in this situation. Oh, God, Yemen is the, just the fucking worst. Yemen's always the worst, that's for sure. I think that leads us into talking about something else about this version. When we say it's melodramatic, like, the plot has been very much simplified from both the play and the 49. Where it's melodramatic now, compared to the 49 at least, is the performance styles. Yeah. This thing's being played to the cheap seats, for sure. And I can see how, in doing Yatsia Kaiden, that that's kind of the deal. Right? That Yatsia Kaiden's like a big melodrama, and that's kind of what you do. There are elements of it that I thought ended up weakening the movie. Particularly, the melodramatic performance styles are part of why the actual ghost story part of the movie didn't work for me as well as I wanted it to. Because they were already at like 11, so when things ramp up, they can't go any higher? There's a bit of that, yes, but mostly I blame it. I blame it partially on the actors, but I mostly blame it on the director. There's some cool ghost stuff going on. You know, Sarah talks about Iwa comes up out of nowhere and all these sorts of things. And this movie definitely does a thing that the 49 version did too, where like Iwa's fucked up face gets like more and more fucked up every time we see it to like the point where like by the end, she's definitely got like some sort of full helmet worth of prosthetic <laughs> on her head. Yeah, and her eye has like melted to be down by her mouth and stuff. Like yeah. it looks really cool. Yeah. But the movie's not like shot or edited in a way that helps emphasize the scares. That's fair. They do just kind of happen they, on screen. They do just kinda of happen. And a great example of this is this director like, I don't know if this is just a style thing, if this is a, you know, hey, it's a Japanese movie from 1956 thing, if this is something where if I saw a lot of crappy Japanese B-movies, I would go, oh, this is normal, or whatever. But this director, from my perspective, doesn't understand what a reaction shot is. Because every reaction shot in this movie comes before the thing it's reacting to. And it really undercuts the horror for me, because instead of, like, a big jump scare where the big horrific Japanese ghost lady comes out of the darkness and goes, boo, and then you cut to the person going, ah! In this movie, every single time we see a person, they go, ah! And then we cut to the gruesome thing. And because of that, we lose the scare because we've been told, hey, there's a spooky thing coming up. To me, like, I see what you're saying. I kind of interpreted that as, like, we know what's coming, Ben. Yeah, we know the beats of the story. We know exactly what's going to come. So it's like kind of furthering the anticipation of, okay, but what does the face look like? I, I get that. 
But, like, just because we know the beats of the story doesn't mean you should undercut suspense yeah. in your horror movie or make it so that the scares aren't scary. Um, it's all telegraphed so much, and it doesn't... I could see a version where, like, seeing the reactions first would get the suspense up. They don't because the melodramatic performance style means that when people get scared in this movie, they get scared like they're fucking shaggy in a Scooby-Doo cartoon, <laughs> they go like, whoa, and then like scamper away like they're a cartoon. Like Takuetsu especially feels like a cartoon character before he dies. I could see that you were really enjoying them, and I agree that they're fun. But Iwa and Takuetsu, despite having some really cool, gruesome makeup, their hauntings kind of aren't scary. Because, <laughs> just like, yay, man. Well, you're a piece of shit. Because they're literally doing things straight in this movie that if you were making like a joke ghost for a joke thing you would have a ghost do like the ghost literally talk like this and the music literally goes like and it's just like kind of hard to take seriously i was really enjoying it because it was like i was thinking of it in the context of 1949 to mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. of like that being so straight i right. guess and then this version being like nah man we're gonna have the japanese equivalent of theremin yeah in here like it was it was fun and it was great it definitely like is fun i think what i'm trying to get at is that it has all the subtlety of a theme park ride. Yeah. And I would love to see a version of Yatsuya Kaiden that's somewhere on the scale between I took out all the supernatural stuff because ghosts aren't real and woo, booga booga booga, it's Iwa, booga booga, you know? Like I want <laughs> something in between there. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from and I think that level of heightened performances i guess is coming from kabuki mm -hmm. um another thing coming from kabuki is tomisaburo wakayama's performance his whole thing his whole thing like the makeup that he has on like everyone else looks um for lack of a better word like realistic like sure nothing particularly dramatic he has eyeliner and brows done up in a certain way so that he looks like he could be on the cover of like a kabuki poster right yeah he looks like a yukioa illustration and it, it's great i i really enjoyed it and the way he acts with his eyes was really cool um because like i get the feeling from other movies where i've seen theater actors on screen they tend to play to the back row and subtle things with the eyes isn't mm. usually in their skill set. Sure, yeah. Um, but that's here. And I really enjoyed his whole performance. There were, honestly, for me, it went over the top too much. It didn't work for me. But I think a big, bigger part of that is that Yemen didn't work for me in this version. Um, but yeah, it just was a little too over the top. I see what you're saying about, like, you. there's a part of me that wants to do the armchair thing, too, of, like, how you could simplify this better. I think where they ran into troubles here was trying to make literally everything a character they made up's fault. Which, I can see why you would think that's a good idea, because you look at the play and it's, like, 14 different plot, counterplot, revenge stories going on all at once. 
and you're like, okay, I need all of these things to still happen, but there's like 8 million characters here. So what if this is just one person who says, do this now? But again, we've talked about why that doesn't work. And then the other thing is, in terms of what characters to keep and what characters to cut, it feels like they made some really strange choices. Probably, if you're going to do this version, they should have cut out Nausuke and Asode. But, like, I'm glad they didn't because their scene is cool. But in terms of, like, if you're going to have it just be someone manipulating Yemen, like, why have Maki and Nausuke? And, you know... The other big problem they run into is there's no one to come kill Yemen at the end because, uh... Nausuke's dead. Well, and, um, Yamashichi is not in this version. He's sir not appearing in this film. And so there's no one to come get Yemen. The ending where Yemen's kind of confronted by the dozens of guys who come to arrest him feels like this is happening only because Tomosaburo Wakayama is playing Yemen. So now it's like because he needs Yemen... to show off his skills, right? Because this is the exact ending of like a cheap sort of programmer crap this out Chambara film. Like you know, you're watching kind of a, a cheap B movie samurai movie as opposed to like a Kurosawa like big A picture samurai movie. If the ending is like twenty dudes surround the samurai at the end and he fights them all off, that's just like how all of them end. The only difference is this time the samurai dies because he's a bad guy. But it, I feel like this is the ending because it's this actor, you know, as if, like, you were doing a remake of Halloween, like the Michael Myers movies, but, like, because you cast Sylvester Stallone as Michael Myers, the movie's going to end with, like, Michael Myers on, like, a helicopter with, like, a machine gun, like, mowing people down. Jesus. <laughs> like... It, sure. It, it it works and it doesn't. I think it's another example of the way that this movie is trapped by the genre expectations of the, like, box that it's making for itself, if that yeah. makes sense. Where it's like, this is the ending because the audience is going to expect this kind of ending with this actor. And, you know, same with all these other things. This is a movie that feels to me less like, oh, you know, choices were made for creative reasons, and more like choices were made because we knew these were the things we needed to do. Choices weren't made. Choices weren't made. Yeah, actually, that's a great way of putting that. I think if I was introducing someone to Yatsia Kaiden, I wouldn't go with the 49 version. I might go with something more like this. I mean, I'm hoping we find a better version in the future, but... <laughs> Um, but I might go with something more like this because it's short, it's simple, it's fun. I have a lot more respect for the 49 version as a film that's like doing a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. I don't know. I think that this movie was doing a pretty good job, um, especially because they knew their limitations. I just wish this movie had a director who sort of understood that the point of having ghosts pop out in a movie is not just to scare the character in the movie, but to scare the audience as well. Yeah. Because watching this movie, it feels like instead of getting spooked by the ghosts ourselves, the reaction we're supposed to just sort of have is like, ha ha, take that, Yemen. Which is the reaction I had. Yes, but like not quite the reaction you want from a horror movie. Sure. Let's move on to ranking. For sure. I suspect we're going to run into trouble because I think you've probably got this ranked much higher than me. Because 
while I had fun with the second half, I don't think this is a good movie. And while I definitely think this is horror, I don't think it's a good horror movie. So, do you want me to go first? How about I go first before you completely demolish my bubble? For sure. So when I was first looking, I was like, okay, well, what other movie had a kind of 50-50 split between, like, two different genres? Okay. And I thought of Freaks. Okay, sure. I get that. Um, Which is at number 52. Yes. And I thought, okay, this might be a really good comparison point because in both cases, the first half was not horror. In the case of Freaks, it's like a, a day in the life. I don't want to say documentary, because it's, mm-hmm. it's not really that. Docudrama. Docudrama. There we go. Um, and then the second half is definitely like revenge horror. With the 56, Gatsu Akaiden, first half is deep melodrama. And then vengeful ghost story. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was a pretty good starting point. Looking up from this point, um, I felt like I wouldn't be able to go above Dementia at Mm. 45. And looking below Freaks, I felt like I wasn't really sure about going below 56, The Black Room. So my range is 45 to 56. Ouch. Uh, We're going to have a hard time on this one. I'm like 100 spots below you. Oh my god, okay. Um, Go, Go for it. Because like... For me, you know, I didn't want to hold the fact that it's like a weight to get to the ghost against this movie because I think that's just a function of Yatsuya Kaiden. You know, unless you want to do the movie as like a flashback structure, I think you're always going to have to wait because there's so much you have to set up to just get Iwa to make sense as a ghost. Um, So I didn't want to hold that against it. What I did hold against it was just that like, it's only marginally better at being a horror movie than if I, like, put a sheet on a fishing line and strung it about going, So I ended up deciding that, like, this is definitely better than the movies on our list that are, like, incompetent. Uh, which means I think the, the lowest ranked, like, actual competent movie is Three Cases of Murder. At 157. And I think this is better at being horror than that movie. Uh, Because while this movie might be a children's theme park ride, Three Cases of Murder was kind of like, your goal was to get like a British lady to sort of go, as a reaction to your story. Uh, Whereas here, at least we're trying to make five-year-olds scream. So looking up from there, we've got like a lot of real questionable stuff. Um, but my eye got drawn to Song at Midnight at 146, um, because it's also a movie about, like, a vengeful, disfigured person. I don't know, I thought that movie had more creativity to it than this film, which, as we've mentioned, kind of just is going through the motions and doing paint-by-numbers. Whereas, like, the one thing I will say for Song at Midnight is, like, it's unique. (laughs) So that's kind of where my range was. But that's, like, very, very low compared to you. So we're going to need to find some common ground based on how you've talked about the movie here in our second half. I'm willing to come, like, way, way up. So I think um, we're 90 spots away from each other. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, the farthest we've been apart on a movie for a while now. And I think the middle part 
unless my math is wrong, is 101, which is Curse of the Cat People. Okay, and right above that is Invisible Man Returns. Right below that is The Lady and the Monster. It's the one where they do Donovan's brain, but they make Eric von Stroheim, a mad scientist in a castle, as like a wraparound frame narrative. Right, right, right. Um, It's hard to compare things against Curse of the Cat People, always. There are like two Invisible Man movies right next to each other, kind of in this zone. Um, Okay, well, Return of Dr. X is below (laughs) this. Okay. I think Yatsuwa Kaiden from 1956 does its horror better than The Return of Dr. X. How did The Return of Dr. X get higher than Mystery of the Wax Museum? Is it just because Mystery of the Wax Museum has too many other genres going on at the I same time? I think so. That's probably it. Okay, because Mystery of the Wax Museum is a better movie. Yeah. yeah. But that, is it a better horror movie? I don't yeah. know. According okay. to the list, it's, it's not. Above Return of Dr. X, there's The Mad Monster, Voodoo Man... The climax. Mm. But looking higher, um, Corpse Vanishes is at 99. And if we want to talk about, you know, having fun, I think Corpse Vanishes probably achieves that a bit better than Yatsua Kaiden. Yeah, Dark Eyes on London is pretty gruesome. Yeah, that's true. There are some pretty gruesome things in the 56 Yatsua Kaiden, um, mainly achieved via... Through Iwa's makeup. Yeah. And, um, like, her melty face and her eyes. Yeah. I, again, it's, it's, I think the tough thing for me here, Sarah, is that we've got some really cool stuff that's in a kind of bland package for me, and that's tough to rank. So what do you think about below Curse of the Cat People and above The Lady and the Monster? Yeah, I would do that. I think that's a good compromise. Cool. So just to, like encapsulate why this is the spot. Uh, the Curse of the Cat People is a really good movie. Yes. In addition to being a really good horror movie for children. Yes. Um, a very, like, mature approach to horror for children. Yes. Rather than a Scooby-Doo approach. Yes. Um, the Lady and the Monster is, as Ben said, uh, Eric von Stroheim is a mad scientist using a brain keeping a brain alive, and that brain is using telepathic powers to overcome someone to continue doing crimes. I think we can put the like most famous ghost story in Japan above yeah. this. So, to clarify a point I made earlier, because we're putting this next to Curse of the Cat People, I don't think this version of Yatsuya Kaiden is for kids. Yeah, I, you know, this is good to clarify. Because I was saying, like, oh, it's only going to scare five-year-olds or something. I don't mean that it's a kid's horror movie, because Curse of the Cat People is a kid's horror movie. I think this is a movie for adults that only a child would find scary. That's what I meant. Okay. Um, cool, cool, cool. So I think, I think I'm good with this. Uh, I'm sorry that I didn't enjoy this as much as you did. That's okay. We're different people. We're going to have different opinions. That's why we're doing the podcast together. Right. So entering the list at the new number 102 is Yotsuya Kaiden from 1956, directed by Masaki Mori. To see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other films we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or 
reach out over Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are found by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you'd like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice, or share the show online, through social media, or in real life from six feet away. Word of mouth is the most effective way for podcasts to grow their audience. If you have the financial means, it'd be nice if you checked out our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Podcast is where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. That money helps go towards our hosting fees. It helps us justify putting apart the time it takes to do the research that this show entails. Um, helps us keep the show at like this high quality level. We are inching closer to our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, at which point we will start covering a horror-adjacent film once a month as a special bonus episode. We have a little taste of that that you can check out if you are a patron, uh, an episode about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Patrons at the $5 level get regular bonus audio cut from previous episodes once a week. Patrons at the $10 level get writing, uh, movie reviews, book reviews, short stories, um, and of course everything from the lower levels as well. So check that out. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, I do have mixed feelings because we are going back to the wonderful weird world of Roger Corman. Okay. Which is... Always kind of like a little from column A, a little from column B, you know? Uh, It's It Conquered the World. Uh, So another sci-fi alien monster movie. Okay, looking forward to it. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!